How are we, Connection Point? It is an honor to get to be back here and to preach to you guys and to preach for my friend John. I am always overjoyed when I'm asked to come to Connection Point and to get to preach. If you've got your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter 25. You guys are wrapping up tonight a series called The Kingdom. Uh, Two weeks ago, Pastor John looked at 10 things you might not know about the kingdom of God. And if you didn't have a chance to listen to that sermon, I want to encourage you to go back after this one and listen. It was unbelievably encouraging, and we're living in a day and a time where we need encouragement and hope more than ever. And you guys, last week, we're blessed to hear from Pastor Dave Faust, who walked through Matthew chapter 13 and encouraged us from each of these parables that Jesus gave about how the kingdom is here. And while we may feel like there's fog and there is confusion and there is chaos in our life, Jesus promises us peace and hope as citizens of his kingdom. Today, we're gonna look at Matthew chapter 25 and consider how the kingdom of God is a future orientation for us. The kingdom is coming. It's not just here and now, it's coming. I believe fully that when you know the king and you seek the kingdom, everything changes. When you know the king, when you know Jesus as your king and you seek his kingdom, Jesus promises us that everything changes. And I don't know what you've got going on in your life right now, but maybe you needed to hear that today, tonight, that everything can change in your life. I'm not sure if you're familiar with Joshua Abraham Norton. Joshua was born in the early 1800s. His father was uh, a merchant, a salesman, who moved his family from London to South Africa, where Joshua was raised. In 1847, he left South Africa and moved to San Francisco and was really a successful businessman in San Francisco, one of the wealthiest businessmen of his time until he lost everything on a bad business deal. And in his moment of frustration and this moment of discontentedness and delusion, he decided he was going to change careers, which was probably wise at that point in time, decided he was going to change careers. And so unlike what you and I do when we change careers, he decided to write a letter to all of the major newspapers at that point in time and tell them that he was now assuming the role of emperor of the United States and protector of Mexico. Uh, Joshua would walk around the city of San Francisco in his blue uniform. He created his own currency. He would write his own laws and enact his own uh, judicial and statements. And everyone in San Francisco thought that it was comical. Uh, They enjoyed it so much that at one point, uh, Emperor Norton was arrested by the police who assumed he had to be insane and wanted to do the kind thing and give him the mental care that he needed. And the people of San Francisco came down and were yelling outside the police station until the police chief brought him out and apologized. And Emperor Norton, being the gracious uh, uh, dictator that he was, pardoned the policeman who had arrested him. They say that when he died, there were were 10,000 people that lined the streets of San Francisco to see Emperor Norton's funeral. Here's the thing, though. Emperor Norton uh, had no power. He had no real authority. He had no real office. His title was made up. And even though he walked around calling himself the emperor, there was really nothing to any of it. And yet there was another man who would walk through another major city 
telling people he was a king and describing his kingdom. And the difference between Jesus Christ and Joseph Norton was the fact that Jesus had real power, real authority, and a real kingdom. I love the Jesus storybook Bible. And I love the way that uh, Sally Lloyd-Jones describes Jesus when he came. It says, Jesus helped and healed many people. He made blind people see. He made deaf people hear. He made lame people walk. Jesus was making the sad things come untrue. He was mending God's broken world. Don't you love that? That Jesus was making the sad things come untrue. You see, the kingdom had come. Everywhere Jesus went, he did powerful things. He demonstrated his authority and his power. This is Jairus. Jairus was a ruler at that point in time whose daughter had died. And he came and he asked Jesus, when she was sick, would you come and heal her? And when they got to the house, the people said, she's dead. Let the teacher go. And Jesus went upstairs and resurrected this little girl. He had kingdom power. And when Jesus came and he was preaching and teaching the kingdom, there were all of these signs that testified to the fact that everything that was sad was coming untrue. Everything that was broken was being mended. Jesus came with power and with authority. And yet, when Jesus would go into these towns and he would heal people, not everyone was healed. And even though Jairus's daughter was dead and came back, not everyone was resurrected. You see, Jesus came and he talked about the kingdom that had come, that there was power for them. There is power for us right now because the kingdom is here. And you've experienced that and I've experienced that if you're a child of God. We've experienced the ability of Jesus to take what's dead and make it alive spiritually. You and I have experienced the power of God in other ways. Maybe you have experienced the power of God when you have been through a medical situation, a difficult, painful situation, and you've prayed, maybe not for yourself, maybe for someone else, and you've experienced the power of God to heal. Maybe you have experienced the power of God to provide. Maybe as you've walked through this coronavirus season, you've lost your job, or there's been a cut back in your income, and yet somehow there has constantly been provision. God has the power to provide for his children. Or maybe it's been the power of his presence, where you have been at a difficult place a painful place, and you have experienced his presence in that hospital room, in that room where you're all alone by yourself. We've experienced the kingdom of God that is here and now, and yet Jesus also taught that the kingdom is this future coming kingdom, that there is something ahead of us that we're to long for, that we're to hope for, and that we're to live for. I love that you guys have this campaign that you're in where you put the signs in your front yard that say you're not alone. I saw several of them as I drove in today. Those signs are a testimony to the fact that the kingdom of God is here and now, and that your neighbors, your coworkers, your friends can experience hope and the power of God right here and right now. Uh, and yet we all know at the same time, we still struggle with our own sin the weakness of our flesh. We, we deal with the reality that we live in a fallen world. And that's because the kingdom has come and the kingdom is coming. Theologians use the language of already and not yet. The kingdom has already come and yet not yet. It is a future reality that we need to be aware of. And we live somewhere in the middle Somewhere between Jesus' first coming as a baby and Jesus' second coming as a victorious king.
And that's exactly what Jesus is talking about in Matthew chapter 24 and in Matthew chapter 25 as he's on the Mount of Olives. The disciples come and they ask Jesus, how will we know when the end comes? How will we know when your kingdom is going to come? And you would think Jesus would say, uh, it'll be in 2020 after the year we've experienced. I don't know if you've seen, there's a meme that's going around right now that is the 2020 calendar. Uh, in January, we had the fires in Australia. In February, you had uh, the coronavirus that broke out. They don't have it on here, but in March, we had murder hornets. Like, I don't know whose job it is to name animals, but like, that's the worst name ever to give to an animal. What did you think would happen when you name it a murder hornet? Um, you can see what we have coming up uh, this month. That's looks like a giant robot with lasers coming out of its eyes. I think in September we have an atomic bomb and it looks like maybe a tsunami coming uh, somewhere. Like it feels like Jesus should have said the end is going to come in 2020, but, but that's not what he said. Jesus in Matthew 24 tells them there are several signs. And if you've grown up in church, you experienced this. It was either Tim LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins novels, or if you were uh, around in church in the 80s, it was flannel graph charts where everybody wanted to know, when is he coming? How can we know when he's coming? Jesus tells us there are signs. You can know that you're near the end when these certain signs happen. But, but he says, no one knows the day or the time only the Father, not even Jesus. And so I think as we start to look at Matthew chapter 25, you need to understand the goal is not to know when the end is coming. And these parables he's going to give us in Matthew chapter 25 are not about us knowing when, it's about changing how we live now. We don't know when the end will come, but we know that it's coming. We have an end times ethic is what Jesus is giving the people who are listening to him and what he's giving us today, a way to live in light of the fact that that day is coming, that we are on the clock, that the kingdom is coming, the king is coming, the end is coming. So Matthew chapter 25, he gives us three parables that we're going to look at. In the first parable, the parable of the 10 virgins, verses 1 through 13, he starts off and he says, at that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like 10 virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. Jesus comes and he gives us this story about a wedding. He gives us wedding language. There was a different process for getting married in Jesus' day than there is today. Today, we have a one-hour ceremony, and then we all go somewhere, and we dance, and we hope that nobody takes videos or pictures that they post on social media. In Jesus' day and time, it was a completely different process. The uh, father of the bride and the father of the groom would get together, and they would arrange the marriage. Now, when I was growing up, there was not a worse idea in my mind because I could only imagine who my parents would have tried to arrange a marriage for me with. Now that I'm a dad and I have a three-year-old daughter, I think this is biblical wisdom and maybe we should go back and we should apply this in our day and time. And so this father of the bride and this father of the groom would get together and they would arrange the marriage, work out all the details. And then the groom would go away. He would go and he would work a job and he would prepare a place for the bride before he would come back to get here. Now that's biblical language that might ring a bell for you. In John chapter 14, as Jesus is in the upper room, he actually says this to the disciples. Uh, he says, do not let your hearts be troubled because he's about to leave. You believe in God, believe also in me. 
my father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you now? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. That's wedding language. Jesus is using very affectionate terms for the disciples and for us. He's saying he's going to go away, which is just what he said in Matthew chapter 24, that he's going to go, but that he's going to come back. He's using wedding language here to encourage the disciples and to encourage us. So this bride and this groom, they would have an arranged marriage and then the groom would leave and he would go and he would work a job and prepare a place and then he would come back. And when he would come back, they would have the ceremony at the bride's house and then they would immediately leave and go to the groom's house for the celebration, for the marriage supper. And so these ladies in the text had a very specific job. They were to be ready. They took care of and attended to the bride like bridesmaids do today. But they also had a function of as soon as the groom got back and the marriage happened, they had these lights that were to be ready so that they could lead the way through the night to wherever the groom's house was so that they could have the celebration. And so what you see in this text is that there were five who were prepared and there were five who assumed that they had more time. And Jesus tells us through this story that they were unprepared. He says that the groom was a long time in coming, which is exactly how the disciples would feel and how we feel. Like he's been gone for so long. When is he going to come back? And they all became drowsy and fell asleep. And verse six says at midnight, which is when no one would have expected him, the groom came and the marriage took place and they needed to be ready. And the five who were foolish assume that they had time that they didn't have. I think that this is a parable for us to step back and just like verse 13 says, it says, therefore keep watch because you do not know the day or the hour. He's telling us that we need to understand that the time is happening right now. The clock is running down and we've got to be prepared. We have got to leverage every minute that we have for the kingdom. Here's the first thing I think this parable is telling us, that our time is his. My time, you personalize this today. My time is his. We have a king and he deserves every minute of our lives. We're on the clock like there is a very real physical sense that we're on the clock. Like we understand we only have so long to live. Uh, they tell us that the average person has 27,375 days. Now, if you're a math person, that's 75 years. The average person lives 75 years. So if you want to figure out how much time you have left or you don't, you just take how old you are, multiply it uh, by 365 and subtract it from this number. That's scary. We, we only have so much time left. And I think I notice this the most with my kids. Catch this. They tell us that we have 936 weekends with our kids before they graduate and they go off to college. Now, you may be blessed and your kids are on the, on the longer term track where they haven't left the house yet. And, and that's a blessing for you, maybe, maybe not. Uh, but we have 936 weekends I can look at my children and I can remember the day that they were born. And when I think about this, it's a terrifying thing that we're running out of physical time here, but that's not what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about the clock that we're on before the kingdom comes, before the king returns, that the time is counting down and every second is one less second that we have before he returns. 
Uh, unless you're Marty McFly, that means that we had better be sober-minded about the time that we have. We had better understand that we are on the clock. Uh, I grew up wrestling. I had a friend whose dad was a wrestling coach, and this is a, a very... Uh, Shameful moment for me to show you this 119 pound stud who has uh, blonde hair over his black hair that he's dyed. Uh, I grew up wrestling and wrestling teaches you how long a minute is because you have three two minute periods that is literally everything you have in your body being poured out and you know that you're on the clock. Every second counts. And so I would have matches where I would have someone and I would almost have them pinned. I mean, I could see that their shoulder blade was just centimeters off the ground and I could see the clock out of the corner of my eye and I would just pray, make those seconds last longer so that, so that I don't have to keep going in this match. Or there would be those moments where I would be stuck in a, in a, in a near pin and I could see the clock out of the corner of my eye and I would be praying, God, please let those seconds go faster so that I can have a fresh start at the next period. You learned in wrestling how long a minute is. And that's exactly what Jesus is pressing here. We only have so much time to to do the things that we have been called to do. And that time is running out. We have got to keep track of the fact that we're on the clock. And so how do we do that? Well, I think that there's a few things that he is encouraging us to do here. The first thing is that we need to think about and evaluate where does our time go? There's an evaluation that happens here because half of them were prepared and half of them weren't for the clock to run out. So where does your time go? We live in an unbelievably distracted day and time. I just finished an incredible book called Digital Minimalism by a guy named Cal Newport who talks about all the things that can distract us from what we've been called and created to do. Uh, there are so many streaming platforms for television, for movies. The internet is just a big black hole of time that you can just get sucked into. Social media, you can spend so much time that's lost and while there is great opportunities in each of those for ministry, I think the better use of our time would be with people using the things that God has given us for his glory and our joy. The second thing that we should think about is not just where does my time go, but what could I be doing in a positive sense with my time? Who are the people that I could be pouring my time into? What are the ministries I could be leveraging my time for? We are on the clock and we have got to keep that in mind that we have a king and that means every minute is to be leveraged for him. The next parable that we get is the parable of talents or the parable of the bags of gold. He, it's a story of a master who has three servants. And these three servants are each entrusted with a specific amount of resources. A talent was a weight of a precious metal, gold, silver, copper, potentially. And they each were entrusted. And I love that you read in verse 16 that the first man who received five bags of gold, that he put his money to work. He understood that his master saw him as a partner. And so he took what he had and he used it. And the same thing with the second man who had two talents. And what we read in that text is uh, that the master comes back and his master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. 
I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Now, don't you wish that this is what Jesus would say to you at the end of your life? Don't you wish right now that this is what your boss would say to you, your spouse, your parent would say to you, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful. Come and share in your master's happiness. You see, they had taken what they were given and they had done something good with it. As opposed to the third servant, who took what he was given and he buried it in the ground. And just like my kids, instead of producing something positive, he produced a story, right? I come home, something's broken, and I get a story pretty regularly at my house. He produced a story. And so he produces this story and tells them like, well, I knew you. I knew that you were this way. I knew that you were a hardworking man that you produced in other places. And his master says, if you knew me, like, if you knew that that's who I am, why didn't you at least take what I gave you and put it in the bank and earn interest? It's not that he was afraid. It's not that he was cautious. It's that he wasted the time and he wasted the resource. He was a foolish servant because of that. J.C. Ryle, who was an Anglican bishop, speaking about this text, he said, the story of the virgins uh, tells the church to watch. We have to understand that we're on the clock. But the story of the talents calls on the church to work. You see, you and I have been entrusted with things. God has given us things. Now, first of all, again, there's a physical sense. Every breath that you and I take comes from the Lord. He's given us that. Every beat of our heart comes from him. I can't make my heart beat the next beat any more than you can. God gives us every single moment, but it's so much more than that. God has entrusted things to us. And this is why the second point is, my talents are his. Your talents are his. We have a king, and that means everything we have comes from him, and everything is for him. Everything comes from him. He has given us everything we have. That's our passions, the things that you love, the things that I love. That's our abilities and skill sets, the things that you can do. Do, the things that I can do. That's the things that we have, our stuff, our house, our car, our possessions, our bank account. That's our family, our job. That's the relationships we have, the experiences that we've had, the knowledge that we have. All of this comes from God and all of it is to be used for God, for his glory, for our joy. And so we have to step back and we have to ask, am I more like the wise and faithful servants? I'm leveraging what I have for the king and for the kingdom because I know I have a king and so I'm seeking his kingdom or am I like the foolish servant I've wasted it I've squandered the things that God gave me you have to take a step back and you have to ask am I living like I have a king and because we have a king that means everything we own has come from him and should be used for him so what, what, what does that look like what does it look like in our life to leverage what we have for the king and for the kingdom I had a good friend who used to tell me it's a lot easier if we live our lives with our hands open to God whatever you have for me Lord I'll do wherever you want me to go whatever's in my life that could be used it's yours God as opposed to living our lives with our hands wrapped around something and the Lord has to pry our hands open. We want to live with open hands. We want to live with open hands, first of all, with the giftings that we have. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 through 1 Corinthians 14 that every single one of us has a gift. 
Now that gift isn't to be used for ourselves; it's to be used for the body, for the local congregation, for Connection Point Church. You have a gift. Now your gift might not be teaching like Pastor John, and it might not be administration like Pastor Greg, and it might not be leading worship like Pastor Dan, but you have a gift. If you are a believer, the Spirit has gifted you in some way. So the question is, how are you using that gift for the kingdom? Or are you serving in some way here, whether that's a gift of hospitality or mercy? Are you, are you willing to help with children? Are you willing to pray for other people? Like there's an infinite number of ways that you could use your gift here. Even in a coronavirus world, you could be using your gifts online to care for people in a community group to help other people grow. You have a gift. How are you using your gift? Here's the second area maybe we should think about. You have relationships. There are people that are in your life because God has placed them there. They are strategic in your life. That could be family members. That could be coworkers. That could be classmates. That could be your neighbors. God has you where you are with the people who are around you for a reason. Are you pouring into those people? Are you sharing your testimony, the, the gospel with those people that God can change their life? Are you allowing those people to speak into your life? One of the greatest things that you can do is open up and allow the people of God into your life to walk with you, to help you grow, to experience his power and his presence. You have relationships that have been given to you by God for God. Here's the third area. You have stuff. Have you ever thought about all the stuff that you have? We, leave, we live in a society where we just have tons of stuff. We have storage units for our stuff, garages and closets, because we have so much stuff. Uh, my pastor, Kyle Eidelman, has said multiple times, every household, every home has about $2,000 worth of stuff sitting around that they could sell and they would never miss that could be leveraged for the kingdom of God. I want you to think about at your house right now, the stuff that's there that maybe you haven't used in the last year. You haven't touched in the last year. Maybe you just need to throw some stuff away, just clean out. Uh, my wife and I, when we bought the house we're in in Louisville, uh, one of the reasons we bought it is that it had a basement and we wanted to use that basement to care for other people. We put a bedroom suit down there uh, so that there was a place for people to come and stay. We've had people who've stayed with us for months. We've had people who have stayed with us for weeks and we've had people who've just spent the night there. It was a ministry we had because we didn't fill it with all of our junk. We just throw stuff away because we should sometimes. Or maybe you have stuff that you should give away. Uh, we had friends that moved just before all of the coronavirus stuff hit and they gave us a bouncy house, like a legit blow up bouncy house, not knowing that the coronavirus would hit and our kids would be locked in our home. They have no clue what a blessing that was to my wife and I, that we didn't have to hear our kids running around and screaming all day long. We could just blow the bouncy house up and let them jump until they were exhausted. You have stuff that if you gave it to someone else, you have no clue how it would bless them. Or maybe you have stuff that you could sell it and with that money you could bless someone or you could pour it into connection point and everything that God is doing here or you could pour it into a local ministry. Like you have stuff in your life that you could leverage for the kingdom and for the king instead of allowing it to consume you. And here's the fourth thing and I think this may be the most important. You have experiences in your life that could be leveraged for the kingdom. Now, now you have 
positive experiences and you may have wisdom and education that you could help and you could pour and you could disciple into someone. But I'm thinking more right now about the negative experiences. You see, we have painful things that happen in our life, difficult things that happen in our life that if we would take what has been entrusted to us and we would use it for our king and for the kingdom, we would find that there is ministry that we never knew could happen. If you have ever filed bankruptcy, if you've been fired from a job, if you have had a miscarriage, if you have been through a divorce, if you've been sued, if you have had any painful uh, medical diagnosis, there are people right now who are watching with us who are walking literally through the storm and need to know, what do I say to my insurance company? What, What do I say to my spouse? What do I say to my lawyer? What do I say or do in this moment? Let me, let me give you a very real illustration of this. On Father's Day, I was driving with my uh, two oldest sons, Wyatt and Judah, and we came to a stoplight and a truck came behind us and plowed into the back of my Suburban. And uh, as you can see here, uh, it was insane. And I, I looked in the rearview mirror and saw him back up and turn and take off. And so I immediately called 911 and told the operator, I was just involved in a hit and run. And the operator said, you need to hang up and you need to go online and fill out a form. Not what I thought I would hear in that moment. And so I drove my car home, hoping that the bumper wouldn't fall off and pulled the car into the driveway. And my boys got out and did what little kids do, ran right inside to tell mom what just happened with dad. And uh, I just sat down in the driveway and started crying. I didn't have a clue what to do. We were going through a lot in our life at that point in time and this just felt like the cherry on top of the Sunday. And I called, the first thing I thought to do was call my dad. I called my dad and my dad walked me through. Here's what you're going to do. Here's exactly what's going to take place next. Here's how your insurance company's going to respond. This is going to be okay, Trey. And then the conversation shifted to, can I tell you what I think God might be doing in your life right now? Because I've been here before. And my dad literally brought peace into the most chaotic moment that I had experienced at that point in my life. Maybe you feel like you're there. You're at the end of your rope. There are people here who would love to talk to you, who would love to walk with you, to show you that there's hope right now for you, wherever you are. And you can message us through whichever platform you're on, and we would love to follow up with you. But maybe you're on here and you'd say, I've got painful experiences. I have been through some difficult things. Let me encourage you. Don't waste it. Use it for the kingdom of God. There are people who need to know that you can make it through the storm and that there's hope on the other side. You see, Jesus is after here telling us, pleading with the disciples, you have been entrusted with things. Use them for the kingdom. Don't waste them because the kingdom is coming. And then we come to the last of the three parables. We come to the story or the, the, the telling of the sheep and the goats. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 25, verse 31, he says, when the son of man, which was Jesus's favorite title for himself, when the son of man comes, now catch this, he's saying when he comes, because the whole point of these three parables is that the kingdom is coming. The end is coming. The king is coming. When he comes in his glory and all the angels with him, He will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from 
the goats. He says that he is coming. The king is coming. And, and that means uh, two things. It means for those of us who are the sheep, that he has a prepared kingdom for us. Again, this is that marriage language. In verse 34, he says, there is a prepared kingdom for the sheep. Right There is not just a place for us, but there is affection for us, the heart of God for all of eternity for his people. This place that he has prepared for us is a place where there is no sin, there is no shame, there is no sickness, no suffering, none of the things that we experience right now. He's saying the kingdom is coming and there is hope for us. But this is the heaviest of the three parables because he said it is a dividing line at the same time. Because there are those who have not trusted in Jesus to save them for their sins. He says, for those people, there is eternal destruction. There is eternal punishment that's coming. What, he, what he's saying here is he is warning us that when the kingdom comes, when the clock winds down, when we have to, got to give an evaluation for what we have done with everything, there's going to be the ultimate evaluation. And this is all about the heart. You see, he talks about the sheep and the goats in this passage, and he talks about what they've done, but there's a difference between the sheep and the goats. And the difference is that the sheep did everything for the king. You see, you go all the way back to the beginning of the message, the sheep are those who realize they have a king, and so they seek the kingdom. And what happens when we know that Jesus is king, we've surrendered to him, and we seek the kingdom, everything changes. We do things with a completely different heart, because we have a heart of flesh that is sensitive to the spirit, and not a heart of stone. You see, there are an awful lot of people who do good things, but they do it for themselves, not for the king, because they haven't surrendered to the king. And, and they, you may be in that place right now where you say, listen, I've got time. I can deal with Jesus later. Listen to what Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. He says, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Here's what Peter is saying. He's saying, it may seem like that day's a long way off, but you don't know. You can't see the clock. It's not like when I was wrestling and I could see there were seconds left. You don't know how much time you have. You don't know how much time physically you have. You don't know the time that Jesus is coming back. And what he's saying is, it may seem like it's been a long time. It may seem like you have a long time, like those five foolish girls thought. He says, it is not that it's a long way off. It's that God is being patient. God is being gracious with you right now. He is giving you time to understand that eternity is on the line. It's not a matter of you wasted some time or you wasted some things. It's that you have the potential to miss the boat on eternity. And he's pleading with you not to miss this, that right now, today, everything could change for you. What's so hope-filled about this is that the gospel is the next few chapters. He tells us the third point from Matthew chapter 25 is that your life has to be his. Your life has to be his. There is a king, and that means that our lives should be surrendered to him, that you have got to give your heart to him. Uh, Paul tells us that if we confess with our mouth that we're sinners, that we've blown it, 
and we trust, we confess with our mouth and believe in our heart that Jesus Christ is Lord, what he did for us, that's exactly what we see in Matthew chapter 26, that he's arrested. We see in Matthew chapter 27 that he is crucified on the cross. This is the one who was sinless, the one who had done nothing wrong, the one who was holy and righteous and pure, was put on a cross and crucified in our place for our sins. And then in Matthew chapter 28, we see that God honored his sacrifice and resurrected Jesus from the grave, defeating death and sin. There is hope for us right now. All you have to do, this isn't a matter of cleaning your life up. So many of us think, I'll deal with Jesus when I deal with this stuff in my life. That's not how this works. It wasn't about what they did or didn't do. It was about the heart. This is where you say, in my heart, I know I am a sinner. I know Jesus is a savior. I am trusting in what he did for me, not what I do, but what he did. And it changes everything. You can pray that prayer right now that I want to trust in Jesus and no longer try and clean my act up or push it off because you and I don't know when the end comes. This is all about the heart. But let me encourage you, those who are the sheep today, I don't know that you saw it, but in every single one of these parables, there was unbelievable encouragement for us. In the parable of the 10 virgins, those who were prepared were invited into the marriage supper. They were invited into a party. Don't you love that? When Jesus talks about the kingdom that's coming, he uses the language of a party. There is a celebration that is ahead of us that is bigger and better than any of us have ever imagined. That's what is ahead of us. That's the future reality for us. In the parable of the, the, the bags of gold, the parable of the talents, the two servants were told that they could share in their master's happiness, that they could share in their master's joy. I don't know that you have considered just how overwhelmingly amazing heaven is going to be. Again, no sin, no shame, no sickness, no suffering. We, we can't even begin to wrap our minds around it because all we've known is living in a fallen world in flesh. He's telling us there is pure joy ahead for us. And then in this passage, we see that there is a prepared kingdom. Listen, I don't know where you are and I don't know what's going on in your life right now, but I know this to be true, that we have a king. And when we know that, we seek his kingdom. Like we, we know that we are on the clock. We know that everything that has been given to us should be used for him. And we know that our hearts should be surrendered to him. And when we live like that, everything changes. You may be in the most difficult place in your life right now. Everything can change when you understand that the kingdom has come and that there is a kingdom coming. When you surrender to the king, when you surrender to Jesus, when you live your life seeking his kingdom, he promises us everything can change. I'm gonna pray for you right now. I'm gonna pray for those of you who have trusted in Jesus, maybe while you've been watching this, that God would give you grace, that he would connect you here into connection point, into great relationships that can walk with you and help you put the pieces of your life back together. I'm gonna pray for the rest of you, that God would help you to understand that we are on the clock, that we have great resources that have been entrusted to us, and that our hearts should be living, beating every breath, every pump for him. Let's pray. Father, 
We thank you for grace. We thank you for mercy. We thank you for Jesus who died in our place for our sins, that it's not about us cleaning our act up. It's not about us getting everything right. It is all about Jesus. I pray that you would help those who are watching right now, who are struggling, who have never trusted in you, that they would take that step today and place their faith in you, that they would surrender to you. I pray for those who are here today who are believers, that you help them know what next step today they could take, whether that is living like the end is coming, whether that is living like everything that they have is for you. God, whether that means maybe even surrendering some huge area of their life over to you, whatever it is, I pray that they would understand that the kingdom is coming and it is significantly better than anything they've ever imagined. And it would give them hope today and it would give them strength to walk by faith today. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.